Welcome to The Thing About Health Coaching, the podcast from Your Coach Health, where we discuss advancements in health and wellness coaching, trends to watch, and the growing body of research. This episode was generated from conversations that occurred at our Global Health and Wellbeing Coaching Symposium in November of 2022, with a focus on demystifying health coaching in digital health, healthcare, and beyond. Please note that the industry is rapidly changing, so some of the information discussed may be outdated. For the latest news in health coaching, be sure to follow along with us and check out our latest health coaching report at yourcoach.health. We enjoy bringing you each and every episode, and it would mean a lot if you could rate this podcast in your favorite player. And of course, hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. Hello, welcome everyone. My name is Solomay Tibabu. I'm the founder of Going Digital Behavioral Health Tech. I'm really excited for our conversation today, and thanks everyone for joining us at our session at the Global Health and Wellbeing Coaching Symposium. Um, our panel today is about behavioral blank, predict the unpredictable. So in order for us to jump in, I'd like each of our panelists to introduce themselves. Why don't we get started with uh, Dr. Wolin, or Kate, uh, Casey, Julie, in that order, please. Sounds great. Thanks, Solomay. Uh, I'm Kate Wolin. Uh, I started my career as an academic medical center researcher. Um, I trained in behavioral epidemiology at the intersection of health psychology, epidemiology, and biostats. And I left academia in 2014, um, where I was doing population health research and clinical trials and observational studies uh, to launch a digital weight management startup. Uh, and I've stayed uh, on the industry side since then. Um, and I currently advise companies on bringing behavioral science uh, into their digital health products and teach entrepreneurship at Kellogg, uh, which is the business school at Northwestern University. Casey. Hello, everybody. My name is Casey Hughes. I'm vice president of behavior design at a company called Brush Try. I started my career out as a health and wellness coach about 15 years ago, and I fell in love uh, with behavior change, the art and science of it. Uh, I then uh, transitioned over to behavioral science and designing uh, population level uh, behavior change interventions, uh, mostly for uh, people with one or more chronic conditions. I spent some time at Stanford, uh, Apple, and then uh, most recently before Press Try, I was at Anthem uh, supporting the government and commercial markets. Hey, I'm Dr. Julie Miller. I'm um, the Director of Clinical Therapy and Behavioral Design at Mahana Therapeutics. Uh, my doctorate is in clinical psychology, and I started really um, more in health psych, so doing a lot of work with people in primary care, um, people in hospital settings, working more kind of on the clinical side as well as the research side. And then about seven or eight years ago, um, went at Duke to work with Dan Ariely and really worked to learn a lot more about behavioral economics and behavioral science as a field um, and really worked there at, on more like population level change. So how do we get people to exercise, get vaccinations, do adhere to medication, that sort of thing. And then the past several years have really been in industry, mostly in digital health, um, both in-house as well as doing a lot of consulting um, for digital health companies to bring behavioral science um, and behavioral design into digital products. 
Wow, we have such an impressive panel. Thank you, each of you, for sharing your expertise with us. So I'd love to just jump in now, um, just for a little background information. Maybe, Julie, if I could start with you and any others, please feel free to chime in. What is behavioral science and how can we apply it to everyday life? That's a good question. So I think different people define it differently. So if other people have opinions, I'd love to hear them too. To me, there's academic behavioral science, which is really um, where a lot of us started, which is uh, really focused on understanding why people behave the way they do um, and why they make the decisions that they make. And then there is a lot of what we're currently all doing, which is more like applied behavioral science. And that really is like, how do you take all of that learning that we already have, um, as well as the process of science into the real world? So how do we take all of that information how do we take all of the fields of psychology, epidemiology, anthropology, um, and design systems that actually influence how people act right now? So whether that's working with human nature instead of against it, whether that's really looking at um, things like not just what do we think is going to motivate us, but what actually motivates us to do things. It's really taking all of that science um, and bringing it into industry. Um, and really defining that from a behavioral perspective. So it's kind of um, the application of all of that science, as well as conducting science in the field to me. Yeah, uh, that's exactly, uh, that's exactly how I would define it. And I would say the beauty of, of behavioral science as an umbrella and behavioral design as it's really emerging as a field is there's a multidisciplinary team uh, now that that you know works under this behavioral science framework. So you can have everyone from biostatisticians to UX researchers and UX designers all focused uh, in this field, which is new, uh, which is which is much different than it was a few decades ago. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with that. I actually think that the UX intersection is really important one. Um, and we work really well together. And people often ask like, how is it different or how is it overlapping? And to me, um, I really feel like they're two sides of the same coin in some ways um, and tell you very different information. So like UX research to me is to, not to go into rabbit hole, but it's like bottom up. Um, and the behavioral science is like top down. So sometimes people can't tell you in UX research what they will do precisely because we're not great at that, but they can pretty, clearly tell you what they won't do and what they don't like. And the behavioral science piece is great at bringing in some of the theory part to help guide that research. So I feel like they are really a perfect pairing. So I'm really glad you brought up the cross-functional part. Yeah, I think that the idea that it's new is one that I sometimes struggle with um, because behavioral medicine has been around for decades. Um, like it's had a professional association and that field, you know, in healthcare in particular, has always been multidisciplinary. We've brought in sociologists and anthropologists. We've been doing qualitative and quantitative research in, in population health and public health um, for a long time. And, and we sometimes use different words to describe it. We might call it community-based participatory research. But when I was training, that was very much about, um, now it was long enough ago that we weren't doing things digitally. We were taking our binders of pages of things out to the community and putting them in front of people. But it was just as important 
um, to get feedback from the community and engage them and test things before we launched these very big clinical trials. Um, and so I, I think what it looks like and the number of, of fields involved has grown and that's awesome. Um, but I think particularly in healthcare, the idea of bringing in different types of stakeholders and doing different types of research before we go into the field with something is something we've actually been doing for decades. Kate, if I could actually follow up on something that's been alluded to by the other panelists, can behaviors be predetermined? Ooh. <laughs> um, well, as someone who loves self-determination theory, I think, um, you know, we all have this element in our behavior change theories of, of some element of agency, um, right? That, that we have choice um, that we want in, in self-determination theory, right? We talk about autonomy being a really important component of motivation and the motivation to engage in behavior. Um, so I, I think it's it's a and the idea that everything would be predetermined, I think, is one most people would bristle at. Um, but I think part of what we do in the science is is you know trying to de-risk it. So when I work with companies in product development, I describe what I do as Bayesian product development, right? I try to take the known priors of the science and use it to seed our thinking. And really what we're trying to do there is not throw spaghetti at the wall, but to de-risk it. So I think there's this balance there that it's not totally predetermined, um, but we certainly can influence it. And that's why we're all in this field. Super helpful, thank you. Now, Casey, if I can go over to you now, can you help us understand how does behavioral epidemiology help in research within specifically the health and wellness field? This is a really perfect uh, follow-up from the last question because while behaviors can't you know, truly be predetermined, they can be predicted. And we know that decades, um, you know, from decades of research that there's known determinants of behavior, physical and psychological experiences uh, that, that influence how people make decisions, how they act and how their patterns of behavior uh, vary over time. And these determinants can not only vary across the life course, but they can vary across geographies, cultures, uh, ethnic and racial groups, uh, social groups. And what behavioral epidemiology helps us do is to identify those determinants so that we can then uh, design our interventions to directly influence uh, those determinants. So for example, we may we may find that you know our target population might be uh, a group of individuals with COPD, and the target behavior would be to get them to use their inhaler uh, more regularly, or you know a population with asthma. And from research and and behavioral epidemiology, we may we may see that you know beliefs uh, around. Uh, beliefs and awareness around their condition may be the biggest barriers uh, to uh, for them to perform that behavior. And so by identifying those, we can design more effective interventions. And so epidemiology not only helps us identify really the etiological factors for certain health conditions, but the behaviors that uh, influence uh, those health conditions. Uh, so it's it's a really fascinating field and 
market is critical to successful intervention design. That was a super helpful example. Thank you. And now, Julie, let me turn to you. I'd like to ask what a lot of audience members are probably thinking and wondering about. Can clinical behavior design help us unlock new ways to motivate people? That's a tricky question for me. So I feel like I have a bit of a divide. So I have my behavioral science side and my clinical, clinical psychologist side. And sometimes they work well together and sometimes they argue between themselves, right? Because they take very different approaches. So as a clinical psychologist, uh, just as a note, uh, you're really trained to work on like what works for this individual person and look at whole therapies, right? So when we test things like CBT, which is a lot of what my current um, programs I'm building look use as their foundation, you're looking at does the CBT program work, like this whole thing? But behavioral science looks at far more discrete behaviors and far more discrete interventions. And so it's really complicated sometimes to marry the two. But to me, I feel like they oftentimes work best together. So uh, from a behavioral science side, a lot of times what you're looking at is a lot of messaging that motivation and internal processes are not that important and that there's a lot of focus on context. And on one hand, I'm like, I do agree with that. The literature says that there's a lot of importance to that. And I do think it, the field of behavioral economics and behavioral science opened up a lot of new interventions and a lot of completely different, innovative, scalable things that we can try that weren't as heavily rooted as like internal change. So I think it was a huge advantage. On the other hand, what we're finding is that for some things, those things just aren't enough or they're not long lasting enough, especially for long-term behavior change. And that's where I feel like the clinical stuff really is beneficial. So that's where I feel like some of the stuff that I bring from my clinical psych background, um, like cognition change, some of the motivational interviewing stuff, some of the like really foundational work that you would do in therapy with like rapport building, like all of the self-efficacy work is actually really useful. So to me, I feel like we have had a, this dichotomy where things are either clinical psychology interventions, which tend to be more behavioral health oriented. Um, they don't have to be though. And then we have like this behavioral science field, which is typically targeting health behaviors. But I feel like where we're gonna end up is really realizing we need both of them. And we need both of them to work together a bit more where we take these like sort of uh, nudge-like, you know, though we're debating about the word nudge, but more quick um, targeted interventions. And then we also layer in this like deeper, longer lasting internal motivation change piece. So I feel like that's where we're headed, but um, it's quite an interesting overlap. That's a super helpful perspective. And Kate, I'd like to maybe ask you a similar question. And do you think we can change behaviors, especially when it comes to health and wellness? Yeah, I mean, I, I think to made it easy on me to get to follow Casey's answer and Julie's answer, right? We have a ton of research um, from decades of, you know, studies in this space that we can change behavior, right? And a lot of times those clinical trials are because we've observed something observationally in our research, right? So those trials don't come out of nowhere. They build on that foundation. So I think we have a lot of data that we can and I think, you know, what Julie's really highlighting is something that uh, folks who maybe are newer to behavioral science don't realize, which is we have, uh, you know, 
close to a hundred different behavior change techniques. And when we're doing our work, we layer them together, right? We don't just, you know, it's not like I know nudging to follow Julie's example, like I've got a hammer and everything's a nail. We bring them together depending on the behavior we want to change, the, the, the things we know about that person and their motivation. And to Julie's point, right, the context that someone exists in. So someone in a high resource setting, a low resource setting in the United States, outside of the United States. And we, we pull all that together, right? So that's like that art and science that Casey was referencing earlier come together in this really nice way. And so I think it can both seem, um, you know, that there's a lot there to build on, which is great for people new to the field, but also like, it's not just the cookie cutter thing, right? Where I've got A and B and therefore I can easily get to C, like it does take, you know, some, some knowledge that we've all built up over time that comes into play. So I think that's where, you know, having colleagues to call on and professional development really becomes important to this field to learn from the science that's happening um, and, and not sort of reinvent the wheel or make the same mistakes that other people have made and learned from in the past. And that's why I think it's really exciting to see how much these fields have grown um, in the past few years, because it means that knowledge base that all of us can draw on is really growing. Yeah, it's so true, Kate. And you just made me think about how much we still don't know and how much we're still learning. There's entire research teams uh, taking on the work of uh, trying to link behavior change techniques that Kate mentioned to their mechanisms of action, right? So for every behavior change technique, what can we, uh, what is most likely to change and, and what behavior change techniques can be best matched uh, with certain mechanisms of action or uh, in another, you can say, call them, you know, psychological constructs, or you could, you know, um, call them predictors of behavior change, but things like self-efficacy, autonomy, uh, personal agency, uh, there's, you know, 100 plus uh, behavior change techniques, but how do we know which are most effective for which people at which times in which contexts? Uh, because the truth is we're all changing each and every day. And as we experience different life events, as we age, um, you know, we're going to change. And so naturally the techniques and the approaches to change that we ourselves uh, take may look different. You know, it, it's interesting too, because I, I feel like that's also true that it's like our field, these fields overlap so much. And that's also true of the more clinical psychology work that is being done because what essentially like we're, I'm finding in my current job is there's a lot of places like, including mine that are translating like traditional, like cognitive behavioral therapies into digital. Right. And this is like, it's as much an art as it is a science. And what we're finding is because these have been typically studies like black boxes, we don't know, like if you take something that's done weekly with a therapist for an hour and translate it into like an app that's done daily, what is the pacing? What parts matter? What is the timing? Do people need more practice? Do they need less practice? And so we're doing a lot, I'm doing a lot of thinking, a lot of research from the literature and a lot of like active research to figure that out. But I feel like we, there has not been the granularity in clinical psych research as much as there could have been to help aid some of this. But I feel like we're ripe for both this like 
part that um, is behavioral science focused in terms of like understanding that as well as clinical. And there's going to be this overlap, I feel like, of like where we need to understand how all of these things work, right? Like how all of them work, what's the right timing, how are like how they're administered changes them significantly. We've way understudied that. So I feel like it's really a great time to be in the field. That's such a good point, Julie. That I mean, the space has expanded and talk about digital companies expanding and startups emerging each day. Casey, maybe I'll ask you if you could talk a little bit about how behavioral design can be used or how coaches and some of these companies use it to help their clients. Absolutely. There are so many overlaps between uh, health and wellness coaching and behavioral design, both leverage problem solving approaches and uh, to, to really help people achieve optimal health and well-being. Coaches work on the individual level. So in each and every session, just as Julie mentioned, psychologists do, you know, while they have much different scope of practice, uh, coaches really want to understand the person so that they can identify their intrinsic motivators, their values, uh, the things that truly matter to them and harmonize those with the, the changes that can best help them, you know, realize that we talk about wellness visions a lot in coaching, right? So how, what can we do to help you realize that vision for your life? And coaches really have a front row seat to behavior change. It's, it's how I fell in love with this field because I saw so many of my patients, you know, they had just come from their doctor who had diagnosed them with diabetes or hypertension or another cardiometabolic condition. And they, you know, the advice, which, you know, unfortunately is all too prevalent was, Hey, make these changes and I'll see you back in three months. So for me, I wanted to make them feel like they weren't alone. And I wanted to help them, uh, you know, on their path towards, you know, that ultimate health and wellness, uh, goal that they they wanted to achieve. Now, where it gets a little tricky um, and, and where I would say coaching needs to grow to be even more effective is there's not enough training in behavioral science for coaches. Uh, very few coaches that I've met or, you know, when I give webinars or I give talks, you know, there's on, on just behavioral science or, you know, the brain science behind behavior change. Um, a lot of coaches come to me and say, I wish I had learned this five years ago, because the truth is sometimes we're just guessing in coaching, right? We don't have a systematic way of matching interventions to the person, the way that we do in, in behavioral design, where we have these frameworks to leverage. So what I'm trying to do uh, through my work is, is bridge that gap uh, between, between coaching and behavioral science and, and really help educate coaches on um, you know the theory-based uh, strategies and frameworks uh, to use in their practice. I think Casey makes me think of um, one of the, the things I've read in the last few years that really I just keep coming back to, which came from Heather Cole Lewis and, and her team, which was then at J and J 
about um, the big E and the little E of engagement, right? We're kind of talking about how we bring people into the, the coaching or the behavior change experience. And I love that Heather kind of framed up that we both you know, we can have all of the behavior change theory and technique in the world in our app or our protocol or our program, but if no one ever uses it, it doesn't really matter. And so the other part of this are the techniques and the strategies, right? I mean, you're talking about empathy and human connection, right? Those things are really important for getting people to actually engage with the rest of the stuff we're doing. And I think that, you know, uh, that sometimes got lost for me in my academic training. It was all about like the technique that was going to get Kate to go walk 30 minutes a day and learn the time management and self-efficacy skills that were in that binder. And if Kate never opened the binder, it didn't really matter if the world's best content was in there. And I, I think, you know, what's really awesome about this is kind of talking about the role that coaches can often play in in creating that connection that keeps people engaged in the broader process um, and all of those scientific driven techniques, which is, I think, a really important inflection point in what we're doing um, for population health, particularly in chronic disease management. Really excellent explanations. Um, it'd be great to get a little nittier, grittier into some characteristics. Julie, can I ask you, how do individual, social, and environmental factors shape our health and well-being? Well, that's a huge question, but I'll say a couple of things. I think um, there's, I think basically they they use both everything about our health and well-being, but also the ways that we address it. So I feel like there, there's a ton of information and literature that we all kind of have grown up with and now understand about, you know, access to like parks and access to like healthy food and how these things shape um, our health and well-being. But also, I think one of the things that's happened recently is those things tend to get overlooked when designing interventions. So we kind of know that there are factors in terms of like leading to specific outcomes, like these things put us at risk, but then we just like ignore them when it comes to a lot of design. And so I would say um, in particular, this is my like weird caveat, but when I was working particularly in a very behavioral economics, behavioral science lab, I realized like most of the books out there were, and things that you read popular press are pretty like, pretty much like nudge, which is like, do this thing, it will change this, right? A lot of what we're talking about, which is like, these are the things that work for everyone. This is this is how you change behavior. These are the, the things you do. And of course, because that's really interesting, it's really for pe people, people really understand that it sells a lot of books. And I, some of you may have heard me say this before, but um, I have often said that if I were to write a book, it would have the most boring title and probably would not be a bestseller, not sell anything. It would be called, It Depends. And like everyone, it wouldn't be like called something exciting that's like, this is the solution that like basically promises a solution. It'd just be called, It Depends. And really, I think that is because I worked in the clinical side and with patients enough to really understand the importance of all of those individual factors and environmental factors on how much those things play a role. So we can have the best intentions at this like population level. And I think it is important to think about like, how do you change things at scale? 
but it's also irresponsible to ignore the contextual factors. I mean, a lot of the whole point of behavioral science was that uh, the idea that we were ignoring contextual factors. And then we focused on a very narrow set of contextual factors and just ignored all of the other ones. So to me, it's really, um, the, those pieces are super important. So like we should be doing things that uh, respect autonomy. We should be doing things that take those things into consideration. Like it makes no sense to suggest, uh, set up uh, structures for people or recommend things in like an app that they can't possibly do, right? That's just demoralizing to people. So I feel like that is one that we're still struggling with a bit because to me, one of the things that... The Thing About Health Coaching is brought to you by Your Coach Health, the only operating system for behavior change powered by health coaches. We help a growing roster of industry partners stand up or augment their health coaching operations with the largest supply of validated health coaches and proprietary technology for seamless integration. We are the premier virtual home for health and wellness coaching, an ecosystem built to empower health coaches while expanding access to their services through our industry partnerships. To find out more, head over to yourcoach.health or yourcoachhealth on all the socials. Join us on the health coaching revolution as we strive to deliver the power of health coaching to the eight and a half billion global population by 2030. Happens is that's a limitation of, uh, in a lot of ways, the implementation. So like, especially in digital, it is, I do feel like a bit easier in clinical and in coaching because it is more one-to-one. So there is the ability to adapt a lot more easily um, and to take into consideration a lot more individual factors about what's going on in a real human person's life. Um, and adapt interventions like on the fly, help them help understand the individual person's motivations, like what are their financial resources, like what sorts of cultural beliefs do they have? Do they have um, any religious limitations or guidelines on what they can eat and what they can't eat or how, like all of the factors that are going into their lives that you couldn't, for example, get through like an app intervention. So I feel like there are benefits um, and drawbacks in everything, but I feel like this individualized care is one that humans tend to have an advantage in, obviously, um, and being able to flexibly like adapt things and really understand and have the empathy for the for people, like individual people, um, and factor that in as opposed to like a blanket intervention across the board. Yeah, this is. I'm so glad you you said that, uh, Julie and. In our field, there there are blinders uh, at times, you know, where we forget that that people don't exist inside and operate inside a vacuum, um, and and there tends to be, uh, you know, from all of us, frankly, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I'll say most certainly myself, and you know, a lot of the world around us. At times, we we look at people who struggle to make behavior change, and we think, oh, if only they'd try harder, right? To say that the majority of us haven't had that thought at some point in our life would would probably be false, and and that's because you know we our society has just forgotten that how the brain and, and many people don't know right that, that the brain requires uh stimulus uh stimuli from from the external environment to decide what to do next so our brain is is always 
trying to figure out, you know, what, what am I seeing? What am I hearing? What am I feeling? Uh, and, and what's going to happen to me next? And so how do I change my decisions and how do I, how do I make, uh, you know, make choices based on what I see and feel around me? So, you know, statistic, a, a recent study I read showed that actually, for example, you know, three and four Americans have tried to lose weight at least once in their life, and 20% of people uh, with obesity uh, have made 20 more attempts at behavior change. So over time, what happens is these aversive learning experiences can, can really hamper, uh, you know, uh, put a put a huge barrier against this, this desire to keep trying and where environment comes in, you know, what I'm trying to get to is, you know, we live in an environment where there's so many, uh, socioeconomic forces working against people, access to care, access to healthy foods, uh, cost, uh, cultural barriers. And so, you know, to just, Anytime you're designing an intervention, it's so critical to ask yourself, you know, what are the environmental forces that may be working against behavior change um, in this situation? I think this is a place where diverse teams, um, not just in training, but in people um, really matter. Um, I, I had an experience doing a consulting project for a large, prominent um, Silicon Valley company in, in population health, lifestyle behavior change, and was talking to a you know, late twenties fit guy with, you know, California cool hair. And he said, you know, I just, I don't understand like why people just don't go exercise at their lunch break. Like, it's just not that it's just not that difficult. Um, right. Like you just grab a quick shower and you're back at your desk. And, and I looked at him and I said, do you know any women with textured hair? As a curly haired girl myself. And, and he was like, oh, oh, yeah, I'd never thought about that before. Um, you know, and I, I think it's easy to anchor because we are humans and we behave um, to anchor our perception of what will work and, and how things operate on our own lived experiences. And I think that the more... We have the opportunity to engage with people who have different lived experiences. The more we learn how those things can look and feel differently for different people, and so I think even in you know um, you know I know clinical psychologists do it and health coaches do it too, right? You have this opportunity to engage with other folks and have shared learning, even if you're not sitting in a classroom and learning you know, behavior change theory, just those, those shared experiences and getting to learn from each other and, and kind of comes back to where we started with that, you know, multidisciplinary teams becomes really important. Yeah, the one last comment I'll say, which I think is a really helpful framing that I have always carried with me, which is that if we all think about it, behavior change on any front is hard, like getting yourself to do anything is hard. And then a lot of the uh, things we've used in chronic disease are like basically the equivalent of scaring people and making them stressed out. And so we're like, I think the reframe for me is like, at what point does it make logical sense that if you're feeling sick, you're stressed out and you're scared that you're more capable of making behavior change than you are when things are perfect. 
Like that makes no logical sense, but somehow we've convinced ourselves that that should be the case. And I think that's a lot of what it is. So many great points. I just, I love this discussion. And Kate, you're already starting to jump into this. I was going to also ask you how we can work with behavioral science to really advance health and wellness coaching sessions and, and even potentially diagnostics. Do you have any more you'd say about that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, over in an era where there's a lot of um, enthusiasm for things like AI and machine learning and data, like let's collect a lot of data. Um, and I think for me, it's, you know, I, I like to go back to the science that, you know, self-monitoring has been a cornerstone of behavior change for a long, long time. And over and over again, we keep seeing like some fancy new technology is, is going to make it easier and we're automatically going to just understand ourselves at this fundamental innate level because you put new data in front of me and over and over again that just gets shown to not be true um and and so i i think for me it's um not to say I don't value data, right? Like I trained in epi and biostats. I love data. I'm super nerdy. But I think, you know, the secret is, is that we have to figure out how to gain insights from that data and then align them to behavior change techniques and motivation and the context that someone's in. And so, you know, I think uh, I, I I just, I think that that's an important thing for people to remember when you sort of hear all the hype around some of these things happening um, in our spaces that um, insights and empathy and human connection are always going to be really important. I believe. Casey, if I could ask you, where can coaches get started to really start integrating these techniques of behavior change in their practices? Yeah, so um, there are some incredible uh, resources that are, uh, you know, cost less uh, than going out and, and getting a formal education, um, which truthfully, I think coaches are, are in most need of a lot of the a lot of the behavior change techniques in, for example, in um, you know, in Susan uh, Miki's uh, uh, taxonomy or and colleagues, uh, their taxonomy that they've put together, our coaches are trained to use those uh, on a daily basis. Things like uh, feedback on behavior, graded tasks, uh, you know, social support. Um, they just have fancier names, but it is good to uh, to to do a bit of research into those because what I found is when I I uh, talk with coaches and I I show them the taxonomy or we we talk through some of the different techniques they're like oh I didn't know that right I I didn't I didn't know that one existed maybe I'll try that new that this new approach with with one of my patients or my clients so I think uh you know combi uh, combi depending on how you say it the behavior change wheel uh is an incredible book uh, by Susan Miki and colleagues um, she's out of University College London uh, in the UK there's also, you know, some just really solid books on uh, behavior design, which um, if we get a chance, you know, we're happy, I'd be happy to, I'm sure, you know, Julie and Kate would be happy to send over some recommendations. 
really great conversation so far. And I can't believe we're almost running out of time, but I'd love to sneak in a couple more if we can. Um, it'd be great if any one of you would be willing to jump in on um, why do people approach behavior change in different ways? I know it's been weaved throughout the conversation so far, and I've really enjoyed that. Would love to hear any more thoughts on the topic. Who wants to jump in first? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep this short. Um, all patterns of human behavior have a deeply rooted history, uh, whether that's at a population level or whether that's at an individual level. Everyone has a story. Some people have come from traumatic childhoods. Uh, some people have had great childhoods, but have struggled interpersonally uh, or have faced different barriers throughout their life. But we all have uh, unique minds. And while certain behaviors can be predicted, we can't say for certain how one person uh, will behave at any one given moment in time, because culture, our beliefs, what we were exposed to, even in our mother's womb, can all influence the ways that we think and approach the world, how our body develops. So humans are beautiful because they are so unique. And as a field, that's the code we're trying to crack is to understand, you know, how to motivate and how to support people all over the world with very diverse needs. Yeah, I, th I think the diversity is always well-intentioned, right? But I think we've heard about all the different disciplines that touch on human behavior. And so, you know, I think each of those kind of lends itself to maybe a different starting point or a different anchor point in the, in the work. Um, you know, and so I think when you think about it from a, like a scientific perspective, um, you know, I think that to me has one, been one of the most fun things about um, being a recovered recovering academic is learning all of the ways that industry will talk about some of the same skills that we learned in school, but they just use very different, you know, language to talk about it. And so, you know, you realize like, oh, like, you know, you're going out and you're, you're, you know, you're interviewing people and you call it this and I called it this in grad school. And, and so there's often a lot of overlap in the approaches that we use, but maybe we just start from a different place and we're all trying to kind of get to that same, you know, population health outcome, which is a great thing. I think I feel very similar, which is we come from slightly different angles. So you're all doing what you know. Um, and using the skills that you know, I think there's also a bit of an access problem. In particular, like to me, one of the parts that I find tricky or problematic is the limitations of access to a lot of academic articles. So there are a lot of places where I think access to research that's already been done would be really useful for people more widely, but that's really hard for them to get. So they have oftentimes have to rely on other people or like hire consultants or get certain companies to do secondary lit reviews. And that's limiting because they can't use what's already existing. So I feel like that's hard sometimes. Um, there's those practical things. But I also feel like um, to some degree, I am hoping that we do start to solidify a little bit more consistent process. Like to me, I feel like some of what's happened over the past few years has highlighted that there are some things that we do differently, but I would love us to more uh, consistently 
really rigorously define the behaviors we're trying to change first and identify the barriers and like take those pro like a, 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 adopt a more similar process because too often we just start, you'll see people start doing interventions without fully defining what they're trying to change or what the barriers were and they skip steps. And then you don't even know if it worked because you had no idea what you're doing to change, trying to change in the first place. So there are parts where I feel like the diversity in the training is helpful, but then I also feel like some unification on process and some shared, like we need to be more rigorously defining behaviors and what success looks like and outcomes and metrics and like engagement, biggie, little-y, like coming together as an entire group to be more rigorous about that would be really advantageous to all of us. Thank you. This has been so eye-opening. Let me see if I can sneak one more in. Um, would love to hear from each of you. What is your hope for the future of the field of behavior science? Maybe we'll go, um, how about Kate, Julie, and Casey, please. Um, yeah, my hope is that the commercial world gives it the same respect they give finance, right? So that I understand that profits, you know, like revenue minus expenses equals profits does not qualify me to be the CFO of Boeing. Um, there's a lot of training that that person has gone through to get there. And I would love, particularly in healthcare, to see us, uh, you know, and there's an art to finance too. So I would love to see us treat behavioral science with the same respect and rigor and, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think mine is similar, which is, I think we're in a little bit of a phase where we need to figure out how it best fits into companies and like how it makes sense. Because in a lot of ways, it's some, in some places it's a department, but in other places it's really, it's really more like a function. And I think sometimes what happens is you're seeing it not be used across the board or it's used like heavily in marketing. Like you'll see like, oh, certain groups are very interested and others are not but some of the ones that are not are the ones that would most benefit, right? So I think we haven't quite uh, tackled how to best uh, integrate behavioral science into organizations, right? Um, so I feel like that's a piece that is still left to tackle, right? Which is, I think, very tied to what Kate was saying, which is like the, what does this look like? And like, what is the benefit of this to all of these different groups and how to best structure it within within a company or within different types of companies to make it actually impactful and not just like these one-off projects. Okay, I swear this was not planned, <laughs> but my answer is identical um, to, to Kate and Julie's. So I, I recently decided to go back to school um, to get my doctorate in public health from Johns Hopkins with a sole purpose of trying to infuse uh, behavioral science into healthcare systems, right? That's, that's my end goal because, it, and that's, that's what I, <laughs> what I wrote in my, um, 
in my letter to them when I was applying was, you know, look around the country at every major healthcare system. You have chief medical officers, chief financial officers, uh, chief operating officers. Where are the chief behavioral officers? Where are the people who are going to advocate and fight for the the power of, of human behavior, because every single patient who enters a healthcare system ultimately is going to have to make some behavior change to improve their health and well-being, whether it's taking a medication, whether it's exercising, moving more, uh, changing their relationships with others. But, you know, in having been at major medical institutions, you know, I can tell you firsthand, it's it's very much lacking. And I think patients are suffering for it uh, because of it. So that is my dream um, for this field is that we can, you know, as, as Kate and Julie mentioned, uh, really have a, um, a strong reputation and uh, greater responsibility for caring uh, for people in this nation. Thank you all so much. I've learned so much today. Um, really appreciate your time. And audience, thank you for joining us as well.